Good morning, church. Good to be here. My name is uh, Dan Hardy. I'm one of the pastors here. I serve alongside John Kuppinger and Jake Pence and Steve Atherton. And it is my joy and privilege to open up the passage this morning, Galatians 6, 1 through 5. Let's pray. God, you are good. You are great, and you are greatly to be praised. And um, I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you, who knew no sin, became our sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And God, I praise you that, uh, Lord Jesus, that you came. You did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but you emptied yourself, and you took on flesh. You took on human form, and you came to bear our burdens. You came to bear the burden of sin that we could not stand up under. And I thank you that you are forever um, our good and gracious uh, interceding king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And I pray, Spirit of God, that you would um, soften each of our hearts, that our hearts would be malleable this morning to the preaching of your word, your word that is given to us for transformation, to be a light unto our path. And I pray, God, that you would... Um, Give us a greater desire to live in community with one another and to come alongside one another when we are weary and heavy laden and to bring uh, restoration to one another for your glory and for our joy. And we pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus. And God's people said, amen. amen. <clears throat> so we are in the uh, fifth sermon of a uh, eight-week sermon series called A New Community, The One Another's of Scripture. There's 59 one another, so we were just able to pick a few of those that we really felt like <clears throat> maybe this body needed in particular, um, maybe us as pastors and preachers needed in particular. Um, but so far, what we've, we've, we looked at loving one another. That was the very first one. And the love of God and the instruction to love one another is the foundation and the motivation of all, all the other one another's. Secondly, we preached honor one another and then live in harmony with one another. Last week, Stephen preached on stirring one another up to love and good deeds. And today, it's bear one another's burdens. And um, there's something I know about each of you. And that is that you either came here with burdens <clears throat> or you'll experience burdens next week, or you had experienced burdens last week. But Paul would not encourage us to bear one another's burdens if we weren't people, if we weren't people who were, uh, weren't burdened. We have burdens. And you're going to hear, I think, that there was an aha for me five years ago when I taught this passage, but you're going to Experience an aha moment. Many of you will this morning, I believe, because when we think about bearing burdens, we don't often uh, connect our sin to those burdens. But my prayer is what you see this morning in this passage, my, my understanding of this passage is that when we are weighed down by burdens and we've not been given relief to our burdens, that will lead to temptation. And our temptation, when it comes to fruition when it manifests itself, will be sin. I've had a couple experiences recently, of, not recently, but in maybe in the last year, 
of the ministry of correction. And I want you to remember, remember that because what we're going to talk about today in bearing one another's burdens is the ministry of correction. And this ministry of correction belongs to every single believer. The ministry of correction isn't just for the, the organism, the church, or the pastors or the leaders. It's for every Christian. Recently, I was on the receiving end of a gentle and spirit-filled correction. The funny thing is, is it didn't feel like a correction. It felt like an embrace from a friend who was concerned for me. And this friend was concerned that I might be weighed down by a burden that had me caught in sin. And his obvious desire was not to condemn me, but to come alongside me. And not in a self-righteous, holier-than-thou kind of way, but in a way where he wanted to know if there was something under the surface in my life that was causing me to seem agitated in the moment. So after he experienced this, uh, later, not in the moment, not in front of other people, um, I went to my car, and I noticed his vehicle, and I noticed the window, like, roll down slowly and have him look at me. And all he said was, how's your heart? That's it. This is a brother that knew the burdens that I've been carrying the last couple of weeks. And then he saw some behavior that he thought might need correcting. But what he didn't say is, like, you were an idiot in there. Or how could you? Or that dishonored the Lord. All those things might be true. But he simply said, how's your heart? He expressed genuine concern in a way that was not condescending and it wasn't condemning. Because of our relationship, he knew that I was weighed down. And he suspected that my burdens were connected to my sin. This friend lovingly, and don't miss this, and courageously stepped in to see how he could bear my burden and thus entangle me from my sin. This friend was exercising the ministry of correction. That is a ministry for every believer. I want to contrast that. That loving, gentle, burden-bearing exhortation with a letter that I got in the mail a while back from Anonymous. I'm protecting the innocent and the guilty here today. And this letter said this, I've heard in your sermons of your anger with other men. People in the roundabout, anyone who inconveniences you or disagrees with you, I've observed it once and heard of it from others. Perhaps your guilty conscience has to do with, your, with an unrepentant heart that does, that does not want to give up your arrogant attitude but just suffers from the consequences now and then. Perhaps the enclosed found in your church can help you find peace. And it was some brochure that I didn't keep. This person says, I, like others, am not interested in your wrath being set loose on me, so I'm sending this without identification. I would have been happier to present you with this in person, 
but I see no real reason to subject myself to your unkindness. Sincerely praying for you. And I read that, not for your pity, not for, uh, yeah, the Lord's my defender. And I will tell you this, that there probably are th- threads of truth in what this person wrote. But what do I do with it? You see, when somebody has the courage to lovingly, gently, and courageously observe something in the context of a relationship and to ask me, what's, how's your heart? You know what it does? It makes me ask the question, how's my heart? And what is growing inside of me? What is burdening me down that might cause whatever behavior? This difference between these contrasting people who both were stepping in in their own ways, one biblical, one non-biblical, into this ministry of correction, is that one conveyed gentleness and love and a desire to come alongside and bear my burdens that were weighing me down. The other expressed irritation and lack of commitment. And I might tell you too, it just caused a lot of wrong thinking. Like, like who wrote this? Like, what did I do to him? How do I make it right? There's, there's, there's no, it's a, it's a dead end. There's no opportunity for reconciliation. Some of you have had horrible experiences in judging and correcting others. Maybe it wasn't accepted well. Some of you have been judged and corrected harshly. Maybe you're on the other side of the spectrum and you jump, you jump all over people with words like, that was uncalled for, or how dare you, or what's wrong with you. That's one side of the spectrum. That you're harsh, and the other, and the rest of you might be on the other side as well. Like, who am I to judge? I've actually got enough problems of my own. Why should I confront that other person? Why? Here's why. We rightly judge and correct one another for the glory of God and for the joy of the other person. It also preserves our witness because when people are walking around with bitterness because we've been hurt and we've never approached the other person, what we end up doing is talking about it behind their back and it messes up our witness. The ministry of correction, I'll say it several times, belongs to every Christian, not just pastors, not just church leaders. God's word clearly states that as Christians, we're to rightly judge and correct one another. However, oftentimes we run to passages like Matthew 8 and 1 Corinthians 5 too quickly. Matthew 8 says when somebody's in sin, you bring two or three witnesses. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 says that you remove the unrepentant sinner from worship. Those are both um, true and right, but they are unfortunate ends to the ministry of correction. 
for an unrepentant sinner. We don't start there. And oftentimes it should take years to get there. Certainly not days. If you've taken our biblical convictions class, you know that one of our convictions is church discipline and restoration. It's not just church discipline. If you haven't taken it, um, it's really the gateway into really belonging to this church. Like you can, you are welcome to be a part of this church and community groups, and there's certain places you can serve without taking convictions, but it's really important for you to take convictions. It's a 10-week class. We offer it three or four times a year, and it'll just, we just lay out some of our convictions or distinctives that might be a little bit different than the church down the road. And one of those is church discipline restoration, and it reads this. It says, the church is to bring loving discipline upon its members who are walking, might I say continuing to walk, in unrepentant sin. And we do this for the sake of restoring the individual and protecting the church. But here's the deal. deal. God has some very specific ground rules or rules of engagement for the ministry of correction. This ministry of correction calls us to gently and lovingly bear one another's burdens and to seek to restore the one who is caught in sin and so fulfill the law of Christ. You need correction. I need correction. We, that we need correction. We need brothers and sisters to come alongside of us. We all have burdens that weigh us down, and often our burdens start to manifest themselves in sinful responses. And what we don't need most of the time is a finger in our chest and someone telling us to get it together and stop sinning. That's not helpful. There's that, remember that show Bob Newhart? There's a, there's a little... YouTube video of him, like a counseling session, and he brings a lady in, and she asks what his fee is. It's like 180 bucks, and uh, and he, he goes, okay, well, tell me, tell me what you're doing, what all your stuff is. And she goes, something like, well, I've got anxiety. His response is, stop it. I'm fearful. Stop it. I'm not loving my husband. Stop it. That's not helpful. It's not helpful at all, actually. We're gonna we're gonna talk about that as we go on. Yes, there are um, there are. We are to stop sinning. But some people, well, I'm getting way ahead of myself. We're going to get there in a minute. So um, we need brothers and sisters who know us, who are committed to the joy of our faith, and will shepherd our hearts when we are stuck. We need others who will lovingly and humbly help us see the blind spots that hinder our joy and stun our growth towards Christ-likeness. And here's why just saying stop is not helpful. Sometimes there's years of burdens, the plaque of burdens that is built up that needs to be chipped off. There's experiences. And it doesn't mean that we excuse sin. But what it means is if we're going to really help one another, we need, to, we need to go underneath, look under the hood of the car with them. And ask and see what is it that you're burdened with that's tempting you and causing you to act out. 
So the heart of, of bearing one another's burdens, as Paul describes it in Galatians, is the gentle and spirit-filled approach to help one another be restored, destroyed, restored, Freudian slip, uh, to a right relationship with God for his glory and the joy of the one who was caught in sin. As we always do here, we're, we're, doing, a, we're doing a topical, we, we teach through books of the Bible here, we're doing an eight-week topical series. Um, and whenever we're in a topical series, we're pulling out a passage out of a book that has context. It was written by an author for a particular audience for a particular reason. So we need to just talk about the context of Galatians at a very high level. Paul wrote the letter to the, to the Galatians, to the church in Galatia. Um, and it was to uh, Galatians, a region. He wrote it to multiple churches. And Paul has a typical pattern when he writes. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. And that is in the first half of his writing... Is true in just about all of his letters. I think there might be one or two exceptions. The first half of his writing, he talks about the indicatives of Scripture, the indicatives of the gospel. The second half are the imperatives. I think a better way of saying that is the first half, he talks about gospel doctrine. The second half is so what, now what? How do we live out gospel doctrine? And that's where the rubber hits the road. And you see, if, if, we, if we look around and we don't see a gospel culture in this church, um, I don't care how well um, God's word is preached and taught here. Um, if there's not a gospel culture, which all of these one another's are, then the doctrine is stuck in our head and it has not made its way down to our heart. Throughout this letter, Paul pounds home his case that Christians are justified by faith, not by works or obedience to God's commands. So there's a reminder all throughout this book that Christians are fully loved and fully accepted. On their best day, the same as on their worst. In other words, God doesn't keep loving and accepting his children because of our faithfulness and our obedience. He loves and accepts us continually because of his acceptance, his faithfulness. On the other hand, just in case any blood-bought Christians might misunderstand the, the doctrine of justification by faith alone and Christ alone, Paul drives home the point that one who is fully and forever accepted by the Father will have an increasing desire to live in obedience to God's commands and will bear increasing fruit. There's no such thing as a spirit-filled Christian who does not have a growing desire to live in submission to God's uh, commandments and is not bearing increasing fruit. There are seasons where it might be raisins, but over time there's going to be fruit. And then back in, in chapter 5, before today's passage, Paul describes the battle of every Christian. We, every human being, including every Christian, has an unredeemed flesh. That's our sin nature. And for the Christian, our unredeemed flesh, our sin nature, battles against the Spirit, God's nature in us. You see, there's this battle, and if, if there's a battle, it's actually a good thing because it is an indicator that the Spirit is at work in you. If you don't have an internal battle going on, um, you probably ought to ask what's up. The battle is a good thing. It indicates life. 
The works of the flesh, sin, are natural to all humanity. The works of the Spirit are supernaturally produced in the Christian by the indwelling Spirit. It's the Spirit of God who gives life to to the spiritually dead. The Spirit makes us alive. And it is the Spirit of God who produces God-glorifying fruit in the believer. You don't produce fruit. The the fruit of the Spirit, love, uh, gentleness, peace, kindness, all that, that's not something you conjure up. It's something that the Spirit of God produces in us as we submit to the Spirit. So after exhorting true believers to keep in step with the Spirit, that's what he does in chapter 5, walk with the Spirit, be in step with the Spirit, he now addresses the believer's responsibility to exercise the ministry of correction for the benefit of others who might be weighed down in their burdens and stuck in their sin. The ministry of correction is is to be exercised for the glory of God and the joy of the one caught in sin. There's three main points today that if you're going to follow along, uh, this is a little bit of a roadmap. So first is the aim of the ministry of correction. The aim, the purpose, the goal is restoration. It's to restore a brother or sister caught in sin. The method, it's in gentleness. And it's bearing one another's burdens. That's the method. And then he gives us a caution. He says, he says don't move towards somebody to restore them and bear their burden unless you're doing three things. Keeping a watch on yourself, understanding that you are nothing apart from Christ, and examine yourself. Let's start with the aim or the goal in the first part of verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 1, 1a. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. The aim of the ministry of correction is to restore anyone who is caught in any sin. There's no limits or qualification. Anyone who's caught in any sin. I will make this statement. It's not made right here, but it's but you see it all throughout Scripture. It's in the context of relationship. We're, our, our, our job isn't to go around looking for people sinning. It's to be in relationship with one another. And what this doesn't mean, when, when Paul says that um, if anyone is caught in any transgression, here's what it doesn't mean. Like, I caught you in sin. Again, I caught you doing it again. Like, we're sin, we're sin detectors. You come on in here. Everybody's looking at you. We want to, we're, we're looking for you to sin so we can call you out on it. Here's what caught means. Caught means that we've been overtaken. It's, it, Paul paints a picture of someone sagging under a heavy load. A heavy load or burden. The end isn't to catch someone in sin, but instead to help free them from the bondage of a particular sin or sins, that the goal is to lighten their load. Most people who are caught or entrapped in sin legitimately start out weak and weighed down by various burdens. They might feel helpless or guilty or ashamed or violated in some way. Now don't, don't hear me, don't hear me wrong on this, that sin is a serious matter, that we're called to holiness. But what the church doesn't do is we just don't go around telling each other to stop it. We gently come alongside each other and we bear one another's burdens. Paul tells us 
right away that our ultimate goal in rightly judging and correcting a brother or sister is restoration. We're to restore the one who is overtaken or burdened by their sin. And the word restore means to repair. Matthew describes this same word in uh, chapter 421 as uh, mending a broken net. That's what restore means, to repair, to mend. It also describes the setting of a broken bone or repairing a dislocated limb. To restore is to bring him or her to his former or intended condition. What is every human being's former or intended condition? It's to be in a right relationship with their creator. To experience the joy of obedience. There's a sense here that the wounded and sinning Christian is already sagging under the weight of their sin and our job is not to break them further but to restore them into a right relationship with their creator and other people. It's to come alongside and repair, mend, bring healing. You see, the longer, and do it, do it immediately. If you know, here's a, here's a phrase to like memorize, if you know, go. If you know, if you see it, go. Don't make it somebody else's problem. Um, the longer a bone stays broken or out of alignment, the longer it takes to heal or it heals wrongly. Is that a word? Wrongly? I think it is. I'll hear from the grammar Nazis later. Uh, it, and what's more painful is to put it back into place. If that bone that is broken or out of alignment, is not repaired, it may lead to greater problems. The burdens of life work this way. They can lead to wrong thinking and belief and lead to sinful patterns. This good restorative ministry is for who? It says, for you who are spiritual. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. It's not for super Christians with a counseling or seminary degree, as good as those might be. It's for normal Christians in whom the abnormal, all-powerful Spirit of God resides. So the goal of judging and correcting a brother or sister is to restore them. The method is to gently bear their burden. So we're going to look at the approach or the method of restoration. We're going to see it in verse 1b, and we're going to see it in verse 2. Paul gives us the approach or method. Paul says in verse 1b, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. We're to restore gently. You see, the, the church has a tendency. Believers have a tendency to either overlook the sin of others or to treat it too harshly. And every one of us is prone to one or the other. You, you, you lean outside of, of totally submitting to the Spirit and standing in the gospel. Um, in your nature, you lean one way or the other. The, the balance between these two extremes, the gospel balance between these two extremes can be negotiated only by those who are walking or in step with the Spirit. You who are spiritual means you who are a Christian. The ministry is for every Christian, but the spirit of gentleness is a fruit of the spirit. Paul is saying that when you are walking in the spirit, then and only then should you approach your brother or sister who is in sin. 
Again, he's not saying you need to be a super Christian. Quite the opposite. You don't need to have your act together before you move towards a transgressor. But you do need to make sure that you're in step with the Spirit. Oftentimes when we're sinned against or a loved one is sinned against, we can approach the one overtaken in sin with, with, with a harshness that wants revenge, retaliation, or retribution. It's a gentle and loving rebuke that reaches the heart of someone ensnared in sin. It was the gentleness of that gentle man that really made me want to like look inside and make myself available to him. Proverbs 15.1 says this, A soft or gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Secondly, after gentleness is bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's the second method connected to the first. When we think of someone having a burden that needs carrying, what do we think of? We think of true burdens, sickness, financial difficulty, miscarriage, loss of a loved one, loneliness, rejection. These are burdens. And there's many other trials and hardships that are true burdens for the people of God. I think the best definition I've heard of a burden that's all-encompassing is anything that crushes our joy of faith. That's a burden. You want to know if you're burdened? What's going on in your life that is crushing the joy of your faith? How do we do this? How do we bear one another's burdens? Let me just give you a few thoughts. First of all, it's, be, it's, it's, it's living in such close proximity to others that when there's something wrong with you, they know it. Moms, you know this better than anybody, especially you moms with young kids right now. Like when that child is in the basement and you're on the first floor and you hear that child crying, you know if it's an angry cry, you know if it's a mad cry, a poopy cry, whatever kind of cry, you know what it is. Like you know that child. You carried him in your womb. You spent two years with them. I'm assuming your child's two years old in this scenario. Maybe 16, I don't know. <laughs> so we live in close proximity to others so that we know, like we, we, we hear their cry and we run. That's the second one. We make it our business to come alongside them. That's how we bear burdens. It's my business. It's your business. We pray for and with them. We meet their temporal needs. These last two are massive. We help them believe the promises of God. And next is we help them uh, see or recognize and reject the lies of the enemy. The burden that Paul is pointing out here is a burden or burdens that manifest themselves in sin. See, if nobody's coming alongside you in your burden or my burden and I'm thinking wrong, I'm receiving the lies of the enemy and I'm rejecting the truth of the gospel, 
I'm going to be tempted easier in the midst of my burden or my trial or my hardship. And we're told in Scripture that temptation leads to what? It leads to sin. When we see someone caught in sin, we should assume that our brother or sister who is overtaken by sin has a burden or burdens. We should assume that they're weighed down by something or someone. That they have some pain, some unbelief, some fear, some sadness, some disappointment that is burdening him or her and causing them to give in to the deeds of the flesh. We're to come alongside them, to uphold them and sustain them and support them. And once again, we don't, we don't just come alongside and say, you acted like an idiot. Don't ever do that again. Get over it. Snap out of it. Repent. Stop sinning. Don't ever, don't ever do that again. And if you do, I'm done with you. And some of those are truth. But where do you, where do, you do that on the spectrum? Where we start with is by gently bearing their burdens. Bearing one another's burdens fulfills the law of Christ. That's what Paul says here. He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What is it? It's how we started this sermon series in John 13. A new commandment that I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. The law of Christ is the new commandment to love one another. The way that Christ loved us. James calls it the fulfilling the royal law. The law of the king. If we genuinely love one another, we will gently and lovingly come alongside a brother or sister who is caught in sin and we will speak gently. Excuse me. We will seek to gently restore them. The ministry of correction is always gentle. It's motivated by love. And it aims at restoration. It fulfills the law of Christ because it is the character of Christ. Jesus told weary Jews in Matthew 11 who were burdened by the constant cycle of law-keeping and law-breaking, he said this, he said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Finally, Paul cautions the would-be burden-bearing corrector to operate in sober-minded humility. Remember, this is written for the one that comes alongside the one that is caught in sin. So Paul has cautions for us before we come alongside them. You see, gentle correction is born of a sense of our own weakness and proneness to sin. So we don't go in pride because pride and arrogance are actually the opposite of gentleness. So he starts off in chapter 1, verse B. Chapter 1B, excuse me. Second half of verse 1. He says, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Paul says, watch it. Examine your motive for exercising the ministry of correction. Is it gentle restoration out of love for the one caught in sin? Or is it retaliation? Getting even. Let's be honest. It's tempting. Sometimes satisfying. It shouldn't be. 
to confront the person who sins in a matter that is full of frustration, anger, and resentment. But it is not loving. It is not the heart of Christ. Our first thought may be to let the person know how they hurt us or hurt others. That we, might, we, we may, excuse me, we may want to get something off our chest that has really hurt or bothered us, especially when they may have sinned against you or your loved ones. Here's a few questions to consider. To, to watch yourself, to know if you're ready for the ministry of, reconcil- ministry of correction. Excuse me. First one is, have I forgiven the transgressor? Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't go to them thinking that you're going to bear their burden and restore them when you're harboring bitterness and anger. Now, forgiveness is a process. But seek to forgive them before you go. Next question. Do I desire restoration or retaliation? And the third question, it's a biggie for me. Am I willing to do the hard work of coming alongside in order to bear their burden? It's easy just to chuck a drive-by, a note, a letter. But am I willing to do the hard work to bear their burden over the long haul. The next caution is found in verse 3. He says, for if anyone thinks he is something, again, this is, the, this is the would-be restorer, not the one that needs restoring. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. We should never approach a brother or sister in a prideful way that says, I am above that type of sin. I would never do that. How could you? Paul says this is deceiving ourselves. You see, when we're prideful, we have the tendency, all of us have the tendency, to approach the fallen one with harsh judgment rather than a spirit of gentleness. We should not correct the one burdened and ensnared without the sober understanding of our own sin. And don't miss this, that you, Christian, are nothing apart from Christ. Can I sneak this in, though? You, Christian, who've been purchased by Christ's blood, you are everything to Christ. You are his prized possession. But we should not correct the burden and ensnared one without understanding our own sin and that we are nothing apart from him. Romans 7, 18, Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Jesus said in John 15, Apart from me, you can do what? nothing. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to send savers, <laughs> to save sinners, of what? Of which I am what? The foremost. I'm going to read it again. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners 
of whom I am the foremost. So before you approach that person that is weighed down in their sin, that has burdens that need to be carried, um, you need to go with the understanding that you and me are the foremost of sinners. Because if you don't see that, you're going to go to them in a self-righteous, holier-than-thou way. We need to take the log out of our own eye before we go splinter picking. The only way to truly approach others in a spirit of love and gentleness, desiring their restoration, is born in a sense of our own weakness and the understanding of our own sins. Jesus said this in Matthew 7, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye and don't notice the log that is in your own eye? That doesn't mean that the ministry of correction actually is taking the splinter out of our brother and sister's eye. But we're not to do it when we got a big old honking log in our eye. He goes on, or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. Recognize that you are the foremost of sinners. Make sure that you've forgiven them. And then you'll see clearly, you'll be approaching them for their benefit, not to get something off your chest. Then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We're going to finish up with verses 4 and 5. They are confusing verses. It says, but let each one test his own work, verse 4, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Verse 5, for each will have to bear his own load, sounds like the opposite of verse 2, uh, that we're supposed to bear one another's burdens. How is it that we're to bear one another's burdens and we're also to bear our own load? In verse, verse, uh, verse 4, let it, um, we should boast in ourselves. Seems like the opposite of verse 3 that says you're nothing. Here's my best understanding of these verses. And, um, and it actually changed after further study this weekend. And I think this is right. We all have a tendency to measure our spiritual maturity and our morality by comparison to others who are struggling. I would never do that. How could they do that? How can that person be stuck in pornography? How can that person be so angry or be such a liar? Don't measure your progress in the faith by people's, other people's lack of progress. This is a caution here in verse 4 to not correct the ensnared sinner with an attitude of superiority. He tells us to test our own work, inspect the fruit of our own lives, and then boast in ourselves. Something I just said should like catch you off guard. Like, boast in ourselves? Like, still that doesn't make sense. Are we to boast in ourselves? I don't think so. Drop down to verse 14. Same chapter, same line of thought. Paul says, but far be it from me to boast 
He just said you to boast in yourself. Then he goes, but far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What he's saying is that anything good in me, anything that's boastable, is because of Christ in me. And Paul said in Romans 15, 17 through 18, in Christ Jesus then I have reason to be proud or boast of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. So yes, we can boast in Christ. Anything good in us is what? Because of Christ in us. And then verse 5 supports verse 4. Verse 5 says, for each will have to bear his own load. And what I think that means is that when the final assessment comes, it won't be a comparative assessment. And for those of you that are here that have yet to put your faith and trust in Jesus, hear me on this. Hear Jesus' words to come when you're weary and heavy laden, um, stop looking at your life in comparison to your friends' lives and saying, I'm not so bad. I'm not doing X, Y, and Z. That will not earn you the grace of God. And for believer, this is for us as well. We'll each have to bear our own load. And I don't know how the whole, like, rewards and crown things happen in heaven. But I do know that what's going to bring us into the presence of Jesus is not our works, but Jesus' finished work on the cross. So let me summarize this. Let me bring us back to the first slide. The ministry of correction is for every believer. It's scary. It has a name. The aim is restoration. It's to restore a brother or sister who is caught in sin. Why? For their joy and the glory of God. The method of correction is gentleness. It's bearing one another's burdens. It's pointing them back to the love of Christ and his gospel promises. And there's a caution, three cautions. Keep watch on yourself. Remember, you're nothing apart from Christ. Examine yourself. Let me say this. This is a journey that I'm on. I'm very much in process. You know that about me. And I'm a, I'm a pretty transparent guy, but I'm not always the most vulnerable guy. And vulnerability takes courage because there's risk. There's risk of being judged. There's risk of being misunderstood. But I want to encourage you, believers, and me, to live before one another in a vulnerable way. Invite people in. Invite people in to open open your heart. Don't just get out of your home and join a community group. Yes, please do. But in that community group, expose yourself. Expose the burdens that you're carrying. Invite people in to carry those with you. I pray that the gospel culture at WCC 
that, we would, that this gospel culture would, would build and that we would love one another in such a way that we would exercise the ministry of correction to one another, that for the glory of God and the joy of one another, that we would fulfill the law of Christ and gently seek to repair one another by bearing one another's burdens. And here's my final exhortation. Don't grow weary of doing good. It's hard work. Serving one another when they're messy is hard work. That Jesus came down into our mess to bear our burden. And we are to do likewise to be involved in one another's mess and to bear one another's burdens. It costs Jesus everything. Yet Jesus did not grow weary. He endured much. He endured everything so that we might be restored. Amen? Let's pray. God, you're good. And I thank you that, uh, that I stand here and many people sit out there um, grateful that our greatest burden has been removed. The weight of the knowledge that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The weight of knowing that the wages of sin is death. But I thank you, you came and bear that burden so that we can say yes and amen to the truth that we are alive in Christ Jesus. That we are fully loved and accepted. That we have your spirit that not only has sealed us and guaranteed us a future inheritance, but also convicts us and gives us the courage and the ability to love gently other people that are stuck. So God, I pray that you would continue to purify this church, that we would be a church that opens um, the doors of our heart to one another, and that we would do the hard work of coming alongside one another and reminding each other of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that set us free from the penalty, the power, and the shame of sin. And we pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.